0: This interview is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. In Practice is an independent publisher, and all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of In Practice.
1: Joen, can you provide a short introduction to your background before you joined Roko?
0: Sure. I've been working in finance-oriented companies since I graduated from Stockholm School of Economics. Uh, First, I did a a bit of a stint in management consulting and predominantly focusing on private equity. And after a couple of years, I moved into into that side uh, and spent four or five years in in private equity in total, working for a few different firms, uh, partly based in Stockholm and partly based in London. Um, However, as as you know, and as is uh, the reason for for this call, uh, since uh, July twenty nineteen, uh, I've been working with Röko, uh, and I guess you could say that you know, given Frederick and Thomas not being employees from day one, uh, you could say that I'm sort of employee number one uh, at uh, at Röko. Um, so this has been um, this has been actually my uh, longest employment. Uh, to, to date, which is uh, which is great. How did you meet Frederick? One of my friends' dad asked me if I thought it would be a wise thing to invest in Röko uh, when Frederick and Thomas had decided to launch. There was an article in the Swedish business uh, business press uh, that they were launching. Uh, and um, you know, certain or some private individuals reached out and, and wanted to invest. He was one of those guys. And uh before he met them, he wanted to pick my brain on if I thought it was a a good idea. Um I thought so. Uh, and a couple of days after their meeting, Thomas uh, Billing, who's uh who's the other co-founder, um, actually gave me a call and asked if I wanted to have lunch. Um, I was working in private equity at the time, was not looking for another job, but uh, both Thomas and Frederick are um, very uh, interesting individuals. So I decided to meet, and uh, I think it was probably four or five days after that first lunch that I I signed the employment agreement. So it was was a relatively, relatively fast process.
1: And how is Thomas involved... And How do they work together? The him Frederick and, and Thomas.
0: I would say they work very closely together and have a uh, have similar roles. Obviously, Thomas is the chairman on paper, and Frederick is the CEO. Um, but I would say most both of them have have similar roles and capacities in the company. They uh, spend. A lot of their time thinking about uh, investment opportunities that we uh, assess and evaluate, uh, and also spend a, a bit of time, obviously, working with the companies that we own. Um, they are on most of the boards of uh, subsidiaries in Röko, not on all, I think, but uh, or not on all, but uh, but on so 90, 95 percent. And then typically together with uh, myself or with Anders Nordby, our uh, Norwegian-based colleague.
1: Uh, and so do they Do they both review every deal deck or presentation when it comes in?
0: I'm the first filter, you could say. Uh, so I filter things before it reaches Frederick and Thomas. And initially, uh, we looked at basically everything. Uh, and then as we have progressed as a firm, uh, becoming... I would say more and more stringent about our criteria, uh, which is also, I mean, it's helpful that we also have a bit of a better deal flow today. Uh, I would say that I basically only send things to them where I think it's likely that we would want to have a physical meeting uh, with that company. And then they review uh, information memorandums or financial information ahead of those uh, Meetings with management teams. So, um, in total, we look at something around, uh, or I look at something, uh, you know, around three to four hundred opportunities per year. Um, and I think maybe a hundred of those uh, get through to to Frederick and Thomas for what, for a what first review. You... Yeah, approximately. I mean, it's not it's not exact numbers, but but approximately. And I would say that we meet uh, we meet maybe thirty, forty companies per year um, in a teams meeting or a physical meeting.
1: What, what originally attracted you to work with Frederick and Thomas?
0: I mean, I was very intrigued by the model, I would say uh, obviously, since Lifco's IPO in 2014, that was a company that I had a bit of or was able to, was able to track it at least a, a little bit so so that's a big uh, a big thing. Um, And, you know, the fact that Frederick then predominantly obvious has proven uh, the attractiveness with serial acquisition and uh, decentralized governance. But as I got to understand or got to know both of them, it was clear that both Frederick and Thomas were actually uh, very experienced in this. They also have a private business on the side um, called Yatmans, which is a boat equipment retailer, which is like a... Uh, Roll-up uh, serial acquirer within boat equipment retail in, in the Nordics, and that is something they have done.
1: Actual boats or, or,
0: or no so equipment? Equipment uh, only. So it's like uh, life jackets, ropes, those kind of things. Both physical and uh, uh, physical retail and, and online retail. So they have been doing that also together before before launching Raco, uh, sort of trying to work together, which is. Which was very helpful, and I think that was clear to me it was clear to me that there was a an attraction in the business model an attraction in uh, the way to um, the way to acquire and govern companies in a fully decentralized manner, which to be honest is a little bit different uh, than uh, what I did when I was in private equity um, but i think I think it was uh, it was intriguing to me then and it's still uh, i think still it's a very attractive model um for some companies to to join into um how is the governance different relative to private equity i think the biggest difference is that we we really strive for decentralization and simplicity in i would say everything that we do obviously this is something where it's it's difficult to always to always excel uh, especially uh, when it comes to things as, such as reporting uh, uh, for instance but we always try to do uh, try to focus on key and core things and do things as simple and as fast as possible to ensure that the small and medium sized companies that we have acquired and invested in remain or retain their competitive advantage which which normally is nimbleness and, uh, and swiftness in, in operations and decision making. And I think that's uh, that's a little bit of a different thing. Um, I'm, private equity is an active ownership uh, type of governance as well. But we can we can be even faster because of our low requirements for internal internal governance actually at at Röko. you know there's not a lot of committees that we need to go to with uh, decision making
1: do they just send you like a monthly monthly numbers simple balance sheet revenue
0: or you know income statement exactly yeah so we get a monthly report uh, full income statement balance sheet uh, and obviously you know from that we can back out uh, cash flow um and then we have uh, depending on Depending on who's uh, technically responsible for that company and also for what that company wants, uh, we have more or less frequent discussions, either during the month or around the month we're reporting. But sometimes there's also companies in our group who don't feel that they are um, in need of frequent and scheduled interactions with, with the owner, and then we can be. Um, and then we can, we can basically let them run. So then it's fully decentralized, I would, I would say.
1: But what about HR and, and do you make them use one Salesforce or one HR no, system? We don't,
0: or? we don't engage in any of those things. So the only thing that we care for uh, or the only thing that we ensure that they do in a similar way, we require all of them to use an auditor that is approved by us and technically by our group auditor. We require them to do monthly reporting according to a template uh, that we have and that we agree. We require the companies to be enrolled, you could say, into our cash pooling system, uh, so that we can make so that we can handle liquidity in a more efficient way.
1: What is that cash? So what do they mean? The cash they earn funnels to your bank or
0: yeah or... it's fun, it, it's almost like we are a little bit of an internal bank uh, so every once in a while there is a company that requires a bit of uh, almost like a revolver you know for net typically for networking capital purposes so they need to place a larger order for to build inventory for instance or uh, or things like that and most of the times <laughs> all of the companies are are in the, in the different bucket, so they have excess cash that they need to deploy somewhere instead of just having it sitting in their local bank account with, with, with low interest rate. And then we facili- facilitate the um, smooth and efficient transition between, between those companies uh, so that the one who is in need of liquidity can access it and the one who is over liquid can, can get something for it. Do
1: you have a certain let's say if I, I'm one of your portfolio companies and I've you know I, I need some excess I obviously generate cash that cash is somewhat funneled into your call it cash pool but I need some excess capital to even for you know, maybe a bit for inventory and maybe I want to build another site or something a bit of capex how do you how do you explore those you know the return on that capital
0: I think that's a good question we it- Depends a little bit on the scale, I would say. Uh, If it's significant CapEx investments, then we need to approve all of those centrally. And we look at them to ensure that the capital that is then deployed into those CapEx initiatives provide a good payoff or a good return. It's not so that we have a clear hurdle that everything needs to clear. I think here it's important to remember we own uh, companies that are in very different industries very different sectors also in different markets if we would have one hurdle rate for all internal capex well, it has to be different uh, yeah, yeah exactly sure. then I think we would potentially uh, minimise or we would would potentially um, make it too difficult for certain companies to uh, to invest in their business. But we we just look at it from a central level. Uh, We need to uh, sort of approve those plans. But otherwise, I would say when it comes to managing of cash in the companies and networking, more sort of networking capital investments, in all our cases, the local management owns shares in their companies. And the way for them to be able to take out dividends is to ensure that the local company generates profits but also generates free cash flow otherwise there is no um there is nothing to pay pay dividends with so we think that the alignment of incentives and interest between us and local management ensures that we want not always exactly the same thing but at least similar things um and that's that's how we work with that
1: i want to walk through a deal a typical transaction in a moment but can you just describe how you compare Roko's model, Cyril s- Aquarium model, versus you know, the Lyftgos or Lago of the world? Like, how how is it different?
0: Yeah, I should start by saying then that you know, I I only have explicit knowledge, of course, about uh, of of our model. I haven't worked with with any of the others. Um, I think we are different, maybe in a few ways, as I can see it, uh, sort of objectively we are a very small and nimble team. Uh, currently we are also obviously a private company which is different to the ones that you that you compare and that gives us maybe some benefits in certain ways and some drawbacks in in others but but we are very a very small team. um where everyone who is a decision maker is always involved uh, from day one when we meet the company for instance. Um, this means that we can be quite fast and efficient uh, in our transaction processes, but we can also be quite fast and efficient when it comes to other decision-making um, processes internally. Uh, and just I mean, just to just to provide you with a little bit of context. Uh, our head office here in Stockholm is. We sit in a, a co-working space. We have a room that I think is. 20 square meters or something like that. And that's where everyone is sitting. Uh, We are five people here at the head office. And then we have, uh, if we call it, our our satellite offices. So Anders Nordby based in Oslo, covering predominantly Oslo and and the UK. And then we have Fabian Spicer as well, working uh, from Switzerland, covering Dach and sort of continental Europe from a sourcing perspective. So, Small and nimble. Um, We're basically, you know, short decision making routes. Uh, We are fully sector agnostic, which is a little bit different from from others. But and maybe then to paraphrase a little bit, given the use of of agnostic, we are almost religious, you could say, uh, in uh, our view on financial characteristics and criteria of the businesses we Assess and subsequently hopefully acquire uh, provided that they meet they meet those criteria. Um, the thing about sector agnosticity means that we can always have a relatively wide net and see quite a lot of opportunities and then we can make a decision where we should invest our resources so both our time and our money uh, when it comes to trying to acquire acquire what we think are attractive companies
1: just on that point though because i think it's interesting uh, you know i've seen the presentation and what what you say around you clearly casting the net wider gives you more runway and uh, and more opportunity to allocate the capital but you also have to know what you're buying you also have to know you know you own a beauty retailer you own component you know you own various different businesses how do you think about understanding these end markets or businesses what is it about your model or the characteristics you look for that potentially enable you to buy stuff from so many different industries uh,
0: I think I mean that's always the um, the balance that we uh, or it's not it's not the balance that we walk or try to manage every day because we have taken the decision to be sector agnostic so um, but the balance between those models is exactly that um, I think the way we look at it we are very firm on Our financial criteria we only buy companies that have grown profits continuously historically and we look at that from a reported historical financials perspective at least five years but preferably retained
1: earnings you mean or
0: uh no but just reported earnings so normally we look at it on you know the company's ebit the last five years Has it been growing? If it has been growing, has it been growing with sort of a relatively steady pace? So no hockey stick, uh, not a lot of volatility. You know, you can have a very nice kager or a five-year period of time, but it embeds, um, it could embed embed volatility year over year. Um, We don't like that. We like things that really, that have almost like a a straight line when it comes to profit growth uh, historically. Uh, and then we like companies that have high operating profit margins, which we define as being above 10%. But if you read our report, you will see that on a group level, we are closer to 20. We're not really at 20, but sort of 18% uh, percent EBIT margin or EBITDA margin. And we think that if you can prove those two, prove deliverability of those two, for a long or a relatively long period of time historically. And five years is wrong in your mind? Uh, no, but it's at least an indication. I think 10 years is is okay, but five years is is at least an indication um, that we can work with. And if you look at it on a longer period of time, then my sense is that you normally, normally something has happened every once, every once in a while. You know, uh, a company may have made a, an investment in a product line that didn't work out seven years ago, and you can see that in the numbers. But that's normally something you can live with, or you can have a period when COVID happens, for instance, which uh, could have a very positive effect on some companies and a very negative on, on others. But at least, you know, the five-year gives you an indication. And if we see that, you know, you've been able to grow your profits historically with a, uh, with a good and steady pace, and you have had a high operating profit margin over time as well, not just the one year. It's at least an indication that this company is doing something right. They have probably an offering to customers which adds value to their customers, which customers are willing to pay for. Depending on you know certain other characteristics, you could get a sense for are they capable of pushing on price increases to their customers when, when they see raw material prices increasing, for instance. So you, you get a good sense for that. If we see those things, then we say that, okay, the next step for us is to sit down with the management team. And normally what we would like then, if you have seen you know, good development over the last five years, we would like it if the management team who's there today is the same management team that delivered that. So that we can get a better understanding of of what really what's really behind uh, the numbers, and then to do that assessment, uh, at least Frederick, Thomas, and myself, but normally also Anders, we attend those management uh, those management uh, presentations. So we meet all the management teams in the companies that we invest in.
1: Why do you only acquire 70%? Or oh, roughly 70%. Yeah,
0: it's, it's not by design, to be honest. Uh, we acquire uh, majority stakes. We could acquire 100% of a company. But what we have seen up until today is we have focused a lot on buying founder, family-owned, uh, owner-managed businesses. And quite often... The sellers, who are then also the entrepreneurs, want to retain a stake uh, as part of the transaction. Um, In certain instances, it's because actually the only reason for them to do the transaction is that they want to take some money off the table, not selling the company. And then, you know, it's natural that that they obviously retain a stake. And in certain instances, they are starting to think about succession planning. And then they want to make sure that they also have, you know, an engagement still, still in the business. Um, so it has just happened that we have been uh, fortunate to be able to buy 22 companies since we started. And all those 22 have been those kind of situations. And in, we, we normally then have a discussion with them. How much they want to retain, how much we would want to buy, I would say that we have crept up a little bit over time, so if you would look at this from the start, we normally bought between sixty and seventy percent in the first one or two years, uh, whereas now it 's more common that we buy between seventy and eighty why why is that I think part of it is because we have uh, acquired slightly larger companies where we think that there is a bit more structural capital maybe in the company yeah, part of it is also that we are not so sure that there is a uh, big difference in the engagement if you own call it 65 or if you own uh, or sorry if you own call it 35 percent as a management or if you own 25 yeah or maybe 15 uh, it depends a lot on the individual and for us, then it makes actually life a little bit easier if we if we own a little bit more from day one.
1: Just on this point of succession, you know, because other call it serial acquirers, you know, Constellation Software, some of the other businesses that acquire a hundred percent of the company, they have that problem of succession and the problem of the founder checking out and cashing out, retiring. Um, how have you seen succession planning? When you buy 70, 80 percent, given the founder has a, has a stake relative to if you quite whole, the whole business.
0: Yeah, I think what, what we do is always we have that discussion with the founder immediately. I mean, as part of the due diligence and transaction process to try to figure out what his or her time plan is uh, that they have in their mind. And it varies a lot, I would say, between, uh, between the different companies we have companies in our group where the founders and entrepreneurs are just over 30 and we have companies in our group where the founder and entrepreneur was above 70 at the point of the transaction. Obviously, you know, the the discussion on succession is very different in those, uh, in those situations. Um, But what we believe is, you know, simplicity is really key for us. Uh, Speed is really key transparency is really key so we try to call it leapfrog that um, that situation by just discussing it up front basically with the management team uh, or with the entrepreneur and sometimes they tell they say that you know i'm envisaging myself as leaving the ceo role in a couple of years or in maybe in one year sometimes they just say that you know i don't know what I what I would do if I if I wasn't the CEO, so I would just like to continue. And depending on that discussion we make a plan. We have done uh, full what I would call uh successions in three companies since we since we acquired them. So meaning that there was an entrepreneur who was the CEO when we acquired and there is now a, a new CEO in place and that has happened in yeah three occasions
1: how do you typically source you know the 300 400 deals that you mentioned per year
0: yeah um, we focus a lot on sourcing through MA advisors or uh, corporate brokers around europe so we build and nurture relationship with brokers in i would say all markets where we are or could think of ourselves as being active which is basically uh which is basically around europe and in all in all countries we obviously look for call it more bilateral situations as well but uh, it has not been a clear focus for us as of today because we think that the absolute lion's share of the volume of opportunities come through brokers. Uh, And hence, we have invested more in developing those relationships. Maybe as we proceed going forward and we become a little bit more well-known, potentially you could see a few more bilaterals uh, for us. But we think that the majority of deals will always come through, uh, through the broker network for us. So, so that's where we, where we spend a lot of time. And in practice, what we do is we travel around quite a bit. And we have a lot of Teams meetings. And we try to behave as we say that we will behave when we do a transaction. So that when we buy something, we get a good reference, both from the obviously the entrepreneur that we partner with, but also from the advisors who are engaged in the transaction.
1: What percentage of deals are typically auction-based versus exclusive or completely private?
0: I would say that 0% are full auctions if I would compare them to what it was when I, when I worked in private equity, where you have multiple bidders you know, working side by side uh, throughout the entire process. But a very high percentage are auctions in the start. And they are then auctions where the seller invites several potential buyers or bidders who look at an IM, for instance, maybe have a meeting with the management team. And thereafter, via the broker, thereafter submits an indication of valuation or an indicative offer. And then most commonly for us is that after that, there is a Face when we are um, in a bilateral situation. So we know that you know the seller is only speaking to us. Um, that's normally what it what it's like. In certain occasions, we have had bilateral discussions from day one, but they have most often than not included uh, a broker even then. But it has been sort of broker led exclusivities, if you will.
1: Uh, how, how do you think you can get an edge if, if yeah, they run through brokers or effectively mini auctions?
0: Yeah, I think we get an edge because we work a lot with deal flow, managing it, uh, well, getting it and then managing it so that we can always look at a lot of opportunities at the same time and decide to go for the ones that we think are the most attractive. So that's one uh, where I think, you know, our call it an efficiency can be relative efficiency and stringent on, on criteria can be, be relatively high. And we can make sure that we invest where we think that the attractions are, are currently the highest. And second, I think we it's very rare that even if it's an auction My experience, at least, is that it's very rare in our size bracket, at least, that you just win on price. You win on price, or call it valuation, certainly to some extent, or you you need to be in in the ballpark. But a very important factor is personal fit and seller and buyer uh, being able to meet each other on things that are not just valuation-driven. Um, so I think our edge can be that we have a, an offering that is a little bit different from, uh, from others and being a little bit different is it, a lot of it comes down to personality, to be honest, personality and maybe governance structure. and But organization.
1: how is it that different? I mean, take Lifko for example, or I mean, Frederick obviously built, built Lifco, and how, how is it different to if, if Lifko or Lager Crowns or... Any of these businesses that have somewhat of a similar governance structure, somewhat of a similar philosophy? how how is it how would it be different if you're if you're coming up a, if you're trying to buy a business that others are bidden on?
0: Yeah, no, I think yeah. It's a it's a very good question. But uh one is that uh, the market for small medium sized companies across Europe is not uh, so transparent so that we are always up against companies that are objectively a little bit different or uh, not that different from us normally you know if we look at at least what we understand is our competition in a transaction it's normally us and then maybe two three local private equity firms and then potentially a more strategic or um, industrial acquirer and then we differ a little bit on our model the normal type of transaction and then every once in a while, of course, we are up against other Sweden-based serial acquirers with small head offices and, uh, decentralized governance. And then, as I said, I think in those situations, it comes down to, to personality, because even if you would think that we are a little bit similar to a LIFCO or a Lagerkrantz, we are not the same individuals. And it doesn't mean that we would win in all of those situations, of course, but, uh, But every once in a while, we do.
1: How many... What what percentage of acquisitions do you typically feel like you're coming up against another serial acquirer, roughly?
0: Depends a little bit in what market, I would say. In Sweden, it's in... Maybe not in all of them, but at least in most of them. Yeah, very high. And I think the same goes for... um, Not exactly the same goes for the other Nordic countries, but it's a relatively high percentage, also in Denmark and Norway and Finland. But if we go to the UK, for instance, I would say that still most of our transactions, we are probably still the only serial acquirer, at least the only serial acquirer from the Nordics, actually. And that's also one aspect. Um, You know, where we are from... um, the culture that they feel that we bring um, and those kind of things um, but of course I mean LiIco does uh, acquisitions in the in the UK uh, and there are others that do that as well so so we certainly we certainly have competition um, but for us it's not it's not so uh, it's not so bad to have a bit of competition because then we also know that, when the sellers have decided to sell to us, they have made a, a considered decision where they have been able to assess and evaluate different buyers.
1: Let's walk through an acquisition and Examples. Let's say let's say I have a company doing just say 10 million euro revenue, for example. You know, you've, you've got your, your a advisor puts the deck across your desk you like it you you know you, you book a visit you and the you and the team go and visit the management team you know, the, the numbers obviously check out in terms of EBITA growth and, and high margins what are you looking for in, when you meet that management team what are you really analyzing
0: I think part of it is the situation to start um, you know as, as we have spoken about our model uh, has really been to buy in partnerships with management or in partnership with management um, and entrepreneurs. So I think we would really want to understand who in the management team or who of the entrepreneurs, if there are several, several, is a seller in this transaction uh, and who is um, important to the business and has been important. Depending a little bit on, those, uh, on the understanding of that, we try to make an assessment of if we think that the management team that remains are the right individuals to take this to take this forward go, uh, uh, with us, so that's that's an assessment that is based on the discussion that we have. It's not a form that we fill out or anything, uh, but it it comes down very much to um, to our sense uh, and our feel for these individuals, I would say. Apart from that, what we tend to do in in those in those meetings and in those interactions is obviously to understand all of the things that you don't normally get a full picture of when you read uh, an information memorandum, and th- those come down to the business logic, uh, where it's position in its respective market, uh, any relevant understanding that we can have of you know customer dynamics, supplier dynamics. Uh, those those kind of things
1: how do you think about organic growth
0: yeah so uh, we buy companies very much based on their performance up until today and on their current sort of state obviously we like them to grow a bit from there but we don't have a clear view that you know you should grow top line with x percent and ibita with y percent or or Things like that,
1: but you model out like let's say i got a 10 million, 10 million revenue business. Do you like obviously how do you model out the returns?
0: Normally, w- uh, what we do is we, we look at our baseline, if you will, uh, is a return on capital employed at the date of the acquisition of, or you know, in relatively short time after the acquisition of 12 and percent, that sort of baseline hurdle, if you will. Uh, and then we track so that's what that, that's year
1: one year one ebit over the over
0: the cost of the yeah employed. exactly, of and, exactly. and then in certain instances we can live with that being a little bit lower in some for some reason and in certain instances we like it to be a little bit higher depending on what we feel are the risks, the inherent risks of that business and, uh, and how, how well we think it will grow going forward depending on, on the historicals. So it's not that we have a, um, as I understand that some other serial acquirers have a very clear three-year plan and a three-year model and after that period of time it should deliver a certain IRR or a certain return on invested capital. It's not really like that. We have a baseline, which is this 12 and a half. And then no matter which company it is in our group, we look at them based on a set of financial KPIs and and financial criteria. We want them to grow profits year over year. We want them to increase margins year over year. And we want them to increase free cash flow year over year. No matter if they are... Uh, No matter, you know, uh, where they are, we want them to improve a little bit year over year. And it doesn't matter if it's a company that has technically already grown a lot since we since we bought it so that they are now well above that um, return on capital employee hurdle. We still assess and evaluate that business based on their on its performance the prior uh, the prior year.
1: Again, take an example, 10 million, let's say Let's say it's only fifteen percent EBIT margins or EBIT A, you know, post acquisition.
0: And unfortunately, it's a, a little bit a little bit too small for us, to be honest, because we buy two million euro and above. But I'm I'm, I'm gonna live with your example. So,
1: okay, we we can do it. We can do it. We can do a hundred million and and make it fifteen. You know, to to make the math easier, right? Um, but but and, and so how do you how do you think about using debt an equity to structure the
0: Transaction. Uh, we use a bit of bank debt, uh, but we are quite conservative. Uh, on a group level, we have an interest-bearing net debt of approximately 1.4 times EBTA. Um, so say that we would do something around that, maybe a little bit higher, uh, sort of day one, um, but not more, not more than two times, I would say.
1: Right. And so, so I think, you know, the, we can talk about multiples in a second, but let's just make it easy. I think it's nine to ten times you've been, you've been paying stuff recently, but let's say it's just ten times to make it easy. So 160 million. So would you finance, would it be half and half you'd look at or how would you look to finance? Yeah, so
0: so I think a few clarifications maybe to start. Uh, our average multiple has been um, actually below eight since we started on an EBITDA level. And in 2022, it was 80 so, uh, I know that our reported. But
1: are you including, yeah, are you including everything in that EBIT e- e- A and, and the put option? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So,
0: everything is included uh, except that we take out, you know, acquired cash or cash in the acquired companies. Uh, but that should then, you know, mirror the enterprise value that we pay. The, um, in our reporting, we report acquired uh, EBIT, which is after. Amortization of goodwill. So it's technically it's not the the right metric, but but we are we are working with uh, improving improving our reporting for comparabil, uh, comparability. But just to, to give you give you uh, the actual numbers, we paid eight times on average on uh, in 2022. Um, but if we use the same the same analogy, then let's say that we have bought a business for with 100 million euro revenue. 15 million EBIT and we pay eight times uh, and then we pay one po- or, uh, 120 for it. And if you assume that EBIT, EBITDA and EBITDA is roughly the same at the point of acquisition, which is normally at least quite close to reality for us, we buy relatively asset-light businesses, then we would maybe take, yeah, call it... 30 million, so 25% of the 120 as bank debt or up to 30 and maybe a little bit below. And then we would own, call it 75% of, of the business. So we would have we would have then a minority stake of, if my maths are uh, correct, and it depends a little bit of, of the structure of, uh, what is that, 22 and a half million. So that would also be a minority or a put call debt then.
1: All right. Yes. Yeah, so, so so let's just say you know you you're paying one hundred twenty million. That's eight times. You you do seventy five percent equity, twenty
0: five percent debt.
1: But that you, but you're acquiring the full the full. This is for a hundred percent of the business, right?
0: Yeah. So th- this is if we acquire one hundred percent, then we then let management reinvest in a new structure. We do. Both alternatives, to be honest. Uh, Okay, so if
1: you acquire one hundred percent, they they invest in this new company. They they basically buy shares. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, how does the put call option work then? Typically, if you only acquire seventy percent.
0: Yeah, so the put call option works in the following way. At uh, day one after the acquisition, uh, it is it's valued as you know. In, or equal to what, what the management team invested for that put call or retained as, as, share, of the, as uh, share of the transaction. Going forward, the put call for each respective company, we have a model uh, where we apply a multiple to the average uh, earnings that that company has had normally with the three-year average uh, for each company. And we apply a multiple to that uh, and then multiply that with whatever minority stake or minority share uh, that is um, retained by the entrepreneur or management team. Uh, So, to put things simply, if the companies we have invested in perform better, i.e., grow their profits, the put call option. Will increase in value, i.e., our value or our um, liability will increase going forward. If they perform worse, it will uh, go down. And so far, we have revalued. We revalue the put call uh, once per year um, in uh, you know in our uh, financial year end in. 2021, the put call option increased due to performance of the underlying companies, meaning that the underlying companies performed better uh, financially. And in 2022, uh, it was the same. So the put call option or put call liability increased in 2022 as well.
1: What's the life of the option typically?
0: Uh, It's never less than five years, normally somewhere between five and ten uh it is tied to an individual shareholder so it could be the fact or it could be the case that in one company we have several put call options with several different dates but it's always one date in advance uh for each individual um and normally between 5 and 5 and uh, 10 so
1: if it's 10 years for example then and I have I've sold my you know 70% of my visits to you I want to sell I've got a ten ten year option. I can put the business to you. So, if I let's say after five years, I, I don't want to work anymore and I want to put it put the business to you. How? So how how do you guys think about financing this option? I mean, let's say for example, all of the companies put it to you at the same time. Like, what? How do you think
0: about? it? Yeah. So, so first, it's not they can't put it to us at any point in time up until ten years. They can only put it at the date which is stated in the agreement which then means that we know relatively well when we will have uh, cash outflows to exercise these options. And we stay... So I I don't have our uh, year-end report in front of me, unfortunately, but uh, if I'm not mistaken, we have approximately uh, 2.1 billion Swedish. Yeah, Yeah, 2.1 billion uh, Swedish in in the put-call now. I think approximately 560 uh, of those are within the f- next three years. So that cash flow we know. Secondly, on or second uh, thing on your, on your question is, we treat the put call debt as financial debt in our reporting, in our leverage um, uh, or debt ratios, for instance. So, uh, and our banks accept it like that. So what that means is that when we have the cash outflow to settle or exercise the option, we can basically just replace it with bank debt because it has no impact on any ratio or, um, uh, or debt-like uh, you know, instrument uh, in, our, in our reporting. So that's really the idea.
1: And uh, so, really, you, you've got to manage that liquidity and in, in, in understanding how many how many of these puts are coming up potentially per year, and how much cash flow you need to finance that, as well as finance growth and acquisitions. Out outside of that,
0: yeah. But but I said, I mean, first we have a very uh, we have a, a obviously a very good uh, cash flow um, or liquidity forecast when it comes to those put calls being uh, or having to be uh, paid and settled and secondly uh, our banks and um, credit providers treat the put call as uh, financial debt Uh, so meaning we could basically at the time when we need to pay them we can replace them with bank debt basically you can relever yeah
1: What, what what why why use put put call options rather than traditional earnouts?
0: Earnouts tend to be shorter in nature. Um, you know, you could technically have an earnout which lasts five or ten years. We have decided to use the put-call option for two reasons, I, I would say. First and foremost, uh, a put and call gives two opportunities. There is, it's both a put and a call. So both parties can actually use two Exercise it, uh, or to not exercise it, of course. But whereas an earnout is is what it is, so to speak. Uh, you could technically re you can technically um, you know renegotiate it, of course. But but normally it, it is what it is. Uh, secondly, is what I said on on timing. An earnout is more common to be one year or maybe a couple of years, whereas our uh, option agreements that we have with our uh, with our portfolio companies or uh, or with the, with the management teams of of our portfolio companies are longer term than that. I think those are the main the main reasons. And we like the long term alignment, so we have actually not done a lot of earnouts, to be honest. Um, only.
1: Well, you could just let them keep the equity.
0: Yeah, but then we then we wouldn't have a uh, then we wouldn't know what what yeah or you know what it would cost us to to get to 100% in each business but why having the put call option we actually have an agreement uh, and we can keep track of the of the outflow uh, required to uh, to get to 100% in, in each subsidiary and therefore treat it as debt
1: right but yeah although if that wasn't there i guess you could yeah, I guess it is. It's it's, it's it's the same as debt, right? It's the same as having bank debt, like you said. Um, so you mentioned how you target like return invested capital or capital employed twelve and a half percent. It seems fairly low, or at least much lower than other players.
0: Why? Why is that? I wouldn't say that we target twelve and a half. Twelve and a half is really the hurdle, and it's just an indication of you know. We, we have looked at uh, we have looked at serial acquirers in all our uh, target markets, and it tends to be that over time the average multiple on EBITDA that serial acquirers pay um, if they buy businesses of a certain size and with certain attractions they seem to be somewhere around eight times. Uh, and if you just take yeah, and if you just take the implied return on capital employed if you pay eight times for a business the implied return on capital employee immediately if nothing happens to that business is 12 and a half therefore that is sort of you know the hurdle that we come from and um, we are a relatively new firm as you are aware Uh, we have been buying businesses for yeah call it three and a half years it's a little bit more than that but but approximately and on average we have had The average company in our group has been a group company for less than two years. So for us to have a very clear return on capital employed target when we buy businesses that we think have done well historically and just want to let them continue to run their business without interference from us, i.e. in a fully decentralized model, it's a little challenging to have a, a... a return requirement that differs a lot from the average multiple you pay
1: right yeah exactly oh, and you can and, and how do you think about the return on equity then and using leverage to boost that yeah so
0: um, return on equity should certainly be uh, higher um, and if you read our report you will see that it's technically lower now in the in the end of the last year but return on equity is a little i would say it's a little bit of a challenging metric in our in our business because the the earnings component of... um, It's not annualized, right? Well, that's one issue. The second issue is that it's exposed to a lot of revaluations due to IFRS accounting, which has very little to do with the underlying performance of the business. So, for instance, this year in Q4, we had a, a hit to the profits of 36 million Swedish due to... The change in the future tax rate in the UK, which impacts our deferred tax liability, it has no, absolutely no cash flow impact as of now, um, but it uh, it impacted the return on equity quite a lot.
1: Mm. Well, but you know, if you use EBITA and 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 net tax and interest out, and you can get some kind of call it rolling. Uh, you know, net profit and and, and put that over equity, and, and you should be getting, you know, north of 15 percent, up to 20, I'd imagine, with the leverage. And
0: yeah, as I said, I think normally, yes, but then you have these, uh, yeah, if you would strip out, uh, strip out all strip the one off things, yeah, yeah, the one off things, yeah, exactly. It's not something we do in the reporting, but uh, yeah, you could. Could probably could probably get to would probably get to those numbers
1: yeah and so it's interesting so really because you're because you're paying you know you're buying good businesses you're paying you're paying decent multiples and and obviously these the owners are, are, are staying on so that re- massively reduces the risk um so you can't you know it doesn't make sense to go and you're not going to be trying to get 25 percent hurdle rate from the bat off the bat you know <laughs> in that scenario unlike buying a two million dollar business that's legacy and the founders leaving yeah
0: i think i think yeah i think that uh, that's a relatively that's well put you know we we don't uh, step change companies when we have uh, when we have acquired them we believe in a continuous evolution similar to what they have done before and then when we are a new or a relatively new serial acquirer the uh, the return rates are are tricky to compare it to others i would just uh, say that
1: how i mean how have you deployed so much capital already though i think we've done 2.4 billion last year i think lifco even done i think done a similar amount <laughs>
0: like... so uh, i think what we have done since day one we have worked a lot with building this network of corporate brokers and we have Ensured we have ensured a very uh, we have ensured focus on being able to assess a lot of opportunities all uh, at any point in time basically Um, we have obviously been a little bit you could call it uh, we have had (laughs) had an extra tank you could you could say given that we have had committed capital from our shareholders so we have had money to invest it's not that we have been needing to be have needed to be self uh, self self-funded from day one we have had that cash available so we have actually been able to able to go after a large set of potential opportunities and relatively large companies as well from from the start Uh, but i think what has what has really been the case is we've spent a lot of time or invested a lot of time in building deal flow building relationships to brokers, staying true to our word in, our, in the transaction processes, therefore being able to already see, you know, actually a bit of, call it repeat business, i.e. meaning that we have bought more than one business, for instance, from the same corporate broker, uh, which means that the actual individual who sold a business to us maybe two years ago or helped sell a, sell a business uh, two years ago, comes back with a new opportunity, can speak well about how we behave. I think that has been that has been really key, and we have been very focused on uh, on ensuring that.
1: But don't don't the other players do that? Don't don't the other lifcos or larger crowns of the world? that they not use brokers as, as is it as well as you or as much?
0: Yeah, I, I think I think yeah I think they do. But I think you know lifco, I think lifco invested approximately the same uh, amount as we did last year. I think they bought slightly more companies, they, a few that are a little bit smaller maybe. Um, but I, I would say that they, they do the same thing. Um, but maybe where we differ a little bit was that we, um, that we have really had a clear view of the importance of that from day one. We have also been very international from day one. So the first year, we only bought companies in Sweden and Norway. The year after that, we bought companies in the UK and in Denmark as well. And since then, we have just, you know, continued to add add geographies. Uh, I think the benefit of that is that we have been able to uh, look at a lot of opportunities at any point in time and assess which ones we think are the most attractive and where we are possible to, to acquire them for a for what we think is an attractive valuation. Why are
1: you buying bigger companies?
0: Uh, it's not uh, just by, uh, <laughs> it's a little bit by accident, I would say. Um, obviously, there is a benefit to buying a bigger company. Uh, normally, there's a bit more structural, ca- structural capital in in a larger company. Uh, it's easier if you would uh, be in a situation where you need to replace management, for instance, and, and there may be a bit more a bit more overall structure and, uh, structure around it. But what happened, I think, during last year was when you have increased volatility predominantly in the credit markets, private equity buyers may struggle a little bit more because it's, th- their returns may be a little bit more uh, exposed or prone to, to att- uh, attractive credit terms than what ours are because we are more conservative with the use of, uh, of leverage. So we saw an increased inflow of larger opportunities, which in our space is then companies that make, call it around 10 million euro of EBIT. And we certainly get those opportunities every once in a while, even and, and did so even the years before. But normally we either got indication even before sending in indicative offers, that, that it would be probably a bit too competitive for us. Or uh, we understood that after having sent in the indicative offer. Whereas last year we got through on more of those opportunities than before.
1: Because PE, P, PE was squeezed in on the, on the cap structure?
0: I, I think so. I think so. Uh, it's not that... Uh, I mean, it's just my, uh, just my w- way of thinking around it. Do you
1: have a limit on the multiple you'd pay then for... Mm. I mean, obviously, given that you want that 12.5% return, you know... You, you...
0: Yeah, I would say... I mean, ov- ov- obviously, it's not so that we always bid. I-, I told you about our average being around eight times. It's not so that we always just bid eight times and we're happy. We go a bit above sometimes and we go a bit below sometimes. But I would say um, I would say that we we bid what we think is is uh, attractive for for any any opportunity. We are not a we are not the likelihood that you would see us buying a business and paying twelve or above. Uh, call it fifteen times EBITDA. I think that's I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, but uh, but it every once in a while we pay a bit more than eight and. Every once in a while we pay a bit less than eight.
1: How many deals do you think you could do a year maximum today?
0: We have. Uh, I think we are, we are certainly capable of continuing to do uh, the same level as we have done up until today, uh, and even a bit more, I think. Um, and just for reference, then, up until today we have done I think the most we did was in 2021 when we bought nine companies. Two of them were add-ons, but but call it then seven, uh, seven platforms. Uh, and last year we bought six companies. I think that's a level that we can we can continue to work with uh, without without any issue running into uh, running into. Uh, <laughs> running into problems with, with just managing the processes.
1: There always seems to be so many more companies that come in the pipeline, right? Every every serial acquirer I speak to, you know, I've done work various different businesses in software and Nordics, UK and US.
0: And they, they just say the pipeline gets bigger every single year. Like, is there any end to this? Yeah, but that's, no, I don't know. But I as long as it's that uh, way, I don't see an issue. Then it's just great because then we can be even more strict and stringent uh, we can make more and more comparisons between various investments at any point in time so as long as the pipeline grows i don't have an issue <laughs> where i normally you know what keeps me awake at night is when i think the pipeline is uh, is uh, too uh, too weak that's uh, that's an issue
1: what what could make it too weak
0: no, but like market volatility is certainly one thing. I think during, during the second half of last year, I, I feel that we got maybe not fewer deals but fewer deals that we thought were relevant to spend time on. That's, that's certainly it. So market volatility is one thing. I think every once in a while you see that you know competition increases quite a lot in the market where you're active. And then even if the pipeline is good, the likelihood of, of it uh, converting into an actual acquisition is is relatively low, and I think that mix, it, uh, blend is, is important. Otherwise, I mean, I think we are carefully opportunistic. Maybe not uh, thinking that 2023 is going to be a, a wonderful year financially, but uh, but carefully optimistic and optimistic for the longer term.
1: Last question, Johan. So. What have you learned from working with Frederick over the last
0: few years I mean, I think I've obviously learned learned a lot uh from working with frederick also working with with thomas uh, I think the most important importance of uh, consistency is really something that is that is uh, a key learning I would say. Uh, i think i come from uh, a background where maybe you know you were a, a little bit more flexible in what you did and uh, exposure to different things and obviously you can look at what we do from the outset and you see uh, you're sector agnostic you know you own a beauty retailer as you as you mentioned and you own a single use medical device business uh, and everything in between and you can say that that's not very focused but i think we are very consistent and focused in what we look for and we look for good companies and sometimes sometimes a good company is uh, is the beauty the beauty retailer and sometimes a good company is the single use medical device and and we just want to we want to make sure that we find those no matter which industry or country they are in
1: is there anything around deal making or, or, you know, getting transactions done that you've learned you know, relative with, with Frederick and Thomas relative to private equity?
0: But I, I think the consistency goes across, actually, because it's also very important staying true to what you have said, staying true to your word, you know, maybe not renegotiating everything that is not of, of, Im, uh, of massive importance, uh, just, you know, to make, make a buck. But I would would fit most of the things into this, uh, call it a value of consistency maybe. And I think for us it's very important that people feel that they can trust us. So if we say something that we can actually stand by it and adhere to it.